Hi, everybody. How are you? Um, it's nice to be here on a Sunday evening. You kind of feel like on a Sunday evening, things are starting to ramp up again for the week, aren't you? And Hannah invited us to leave those. I'm going to invite you just to put a hand on them. Don't put them here, but put a hand on them and bring them into this space. Bring them into the chapter that we're going to read and bring them into what God might be saying to us and to you this evening as we explore what it means to follow Jesus right here, right now, this week. Um, I'm going to read from Mark chapter 6, because that is where we are up to in this series. Um, I should probably turn my thing on first. Uh, so Mark 6, we're reading... 1 to 13, and then we snip it in 30. Um, but we're dealing with the whole chapter this evening. We'll pull be strands in and out of it. So he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things from? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter's son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went on about and among teaching in villages, and he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so when they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. And then just fast forward to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. This is a great chapter. Um, I mean, when you look at the structure of this chapter as Mark arranges all these little nuggets of stories, uh, Matthew and Luke arrange them a little bit differently, but Mark was first there. He wrote the gospel first. And he's with Peter as Peter is preaching in Rome. And he arranges all these little stories together. And Mark, for Mark, it's all about following. It's all about becoming and being and joining in with Jesus. And the structure of this, this chapter, it's like Sunday School Central, isn't it? I mean, there's so many flannel graph images are coming to my mind when I was a kid of all these different stories. Um, we've got the, the sending out of the 12, the being rejected. Um, we've got then this weird little incident with Herod and John the Baptist. And um, then you kind of fast forward and go back in time a little bit there um, in those verses. And there's a feeding of the 5,000. And then there is where Jesus walks on water and calms the storm. And there's this healing, uh, again, loads of people being healed um, and more touching of Jesus' hem as there was in the last chapter. And I mean, it's all, I mean, it's, we heard these all in Sunday school. You know, if you went to Sunday school, you heard the story, you banked it in your brain there somewhere. And tonight we just want to connect them together and connect them into what your week is going to look like. Um... This is a picture of a lady called Lena. She's just slightly older than me. Uh, when my husband, Nathaniel, and I went to Bangladesh, we were asked by SIM, the agency that we worked with, to go and live for three months with a Muslim Bangladeshi family. 
Um, and so we did. We lived in her extended family for just under a year. There were five brothers, five wives, seven kids, and us in a house, and no doors in the house. Privacy is not a thing in Bangladesh. Um, we kind of joke sometimes, we'll say we'll write a story about it. Um, could turn into a six-episode BBC drama, black comedy. It was brilliant. It was beautiful. It was the steepest learning curve of my life. We were sent and we, we were asked to do this um, because not just to learn language, but to learn culture and to learn how to behave and to belong and to become a Muslim woman as much as a, much of a, as a Muslim woman as I could without compromising the biblical way of life. Because often people find that, um, as SIM have been working there for years, they find that actually people's reception to the gospel was blocked by the reception to the messenger. They didn't even get to the message of the gospel because they rejected white women um, because Christians were um, people who drank alcohol at pork. There was cheap sex, loose morals, because that's what you see from Western Christian countries on HBO in Bangladesh. And so I lived with this Muslim family for just under a year with Nathaniel and Micah, learning to become as much of a Muslim woman as I possibly could, to take as many of those barriers away to get the message of the gospel. Now, I did a whole, and before I went and did this, I did a whole master's thesis in Belfast Bible College, but that was head learning. This was real, raw life learning. Um, I learned to be and to become, to become a whole new way of being Donna Jennings, living in a new space. I learned how to smile in photos, or not to smile, because as you can see in the photos, you don't smile in photos um, to, be, to be culturally appropriate. I learned to lower my eyes when men were in the room. I learned how to be a, a host and a guest because social rules are really important there. I learned how to wear a sari every day in a modest way and to climb up on a rickshaw with a nine-month-old on my hip. I learned how to parent in a different way. I learned how to be a neighbor in a different way. I learned how to barter in the women's market and I was desperate just to go to the Tesco counter and not have to deal with, can I get less for, or more? I learned how to express sadness and anger and gratitude and love in a whole different way. And I literally learned it, not from the textbooks, by walking at this woman's side for nine months. It was really male, female, divided household. And literally, I was at her side for nine months. Sometimes she knew what I was there to do, uh, not the missionary bit, but she knew that I was there to be able to fit in and belong in, in Bangladesh. And sometimes she would tell me directly what to do. And even after I moved to another hometown, she would phone me and she would say, right, it's this date, this is happening, this is what you need to do for your neighbours. And sometimes I would just ask questions like, why did you do that? What would do, what, what, what would go on, why? What would happen if you did something else? But most of the time, I just learned from being with her. I just absorbed it, and I learned to behave that way. And that's not unlike the model of discipleship that Jesus used. Uh, that word you see up there, mathetes, it's the whole, whole essence of what it means to follow Jesus, to become like him, just to be like him, be with him, become like him, absorb who he was and be drawn into what he's doing. And I was like this little follower to Lena, except she wouldn't let me do anything. And at first I thought maybe it's because we're kind of like the guests, but we definitely got beyond that. We became part of the family. It was because I was rubbish at doing things the Bangladeshi way. I mean, really, I was rubbish. I lived for nine months hearing 16 times a day, apni parbena, she can't do it. Every morning I got up with Lena to make the breads for breakfast. And honestly, these women were whipping them off, the little rolling pin things, soft, perfect circles. And I was still working on one, you know, and it was like, they used to hold out the wee grill to their neighbors and say, look, it's like the map of Bangladesh today. Every time I started to sweep the house, no hoovers, um, really dusty, they would just come and take the, the thing off me because I was making more dust than gathering the dust. Every time I cut the vegetables and the wee knife thing on the floor, they would just put them in the bowl and give them to the animals because you couldn't serve them to anybody. I thought, right, what can I do here? I'm going to try and make pancakes for this family. And literally, they went, disgusting. 
My parenting was just shocking to them. They hated Micah's travel cot. First night there, they came into the room, no doors, lifted Micah out of his travel cot, brought him back into their bed and said, we'll look after him if you can't. <laughs> I lived for nine months hearing Apni Parvana. And Jesus' model of discipleship, of following, of apprenticeship or training is so like what I did with Lena, except he does not say Apni Parvana. He says, you do it. And there's a transition as we enter into chapter six of Mark's gospel that we're going to focus on this evening. And we've called it participation. You hear it talked about in here a lot. And Jesus invites his disciples at this stage of the gospel, at this stage of Jesus walking with them towards the fullness of the gospel coming in the cross and the resurrection. Jesus asks them, to participate in what he's doing, not just to become like him, but to do what he's doing. And so he says in, in this chapter to the disciples, uh, you, go, go and do what I've been doing, go and teach, go and cast out demons and go and heal. He gives them authority to do it. He gives them a place and a privilege. He gives them responsibility. He gives them accountability. And he sends them out. We see this um, in Feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we'll talk about a little conversation that goes on. He says, you feed them. And then he sends the boat out alone. This is just the way God has always chosen to work. If I was God, I would be so much more like Lena and just say, you cannot do it. I'm sorting it all out here. It's not going to go wrong if I do it. But God is not like that. He invites us to join him. He has given each one of us responsibility, a privilege to be part of what he's doing in the world. That's what it means to be made in God's image. It means to be distinct. It means to sit as kings, priests, and prophets in between the creator and our patch of creation we, as kings or vice-regents, we rule with God in a way that exerts God's character and his heart for the people and places we're in. We bring those needs to God like priests and bring them back to him and doing what Gareth was talking about this morning and lamenting. And we prophetically speak and act new truths and possibilities for the people and places that we're in. It's the design for humanity to be participants in what God is doing in the world. And so it's part of how the Holy Spirit works. To participate with God and his rule, we can't do it without the Spirit. And as the Spirit burst creation at the beginning of time, he hovered over that chaos. And the Spirit hovered and brooded over Mary in the conception and birthing of Jesus Christ, the image of God. At Pentecost, the church was birthed as the Spirit hovered and brooded over, over the earth and the church. We sing that, don't we? The church of Christ was born and the Spirit lit the flame. Pentecost was the coming, the giving, the sending of the Spirit into the world, birthing us as the church to participate with Jesus in what he's doing in the world. Jesus is making all things new. He is, even today, reconciling heaven and earth back together again. As the kingdom comes to bear on Satan's grip on this world, that's what the disciples were charged with doing, going and being a part of that releasing Satan's grip on the world, proclaiming, announcing that the kingdom was here. We cannot participate with Jesus without the joining of the work of the Spirit into the person of Jesus. We join with him in the bringing of, king, of the kingdom of heaven to earth. And we are prayerfully present to God in our places. Prayerfully present to him in his word. What's he saying to us? 
prayerfully present to him with those around us. He is working in his world. And so where do we see him working? What are the signs we're looking for? What are the spaces of the wind blowing that we are seeing being knocked over and moving? Are we present to that? Are we present to him and us? What's he saying to us through us and our lives? In Acts, Jesus says to the disciples, my spirit will come and you will have power to be my witnesses, to be the signposts and to point out where I'm working, to be part of it, to tell God's story through your stories. And so to participate with Christ through his spirit, we've got to be personal. It doesn't just happen. It's not a fluffy concept that sits up there somewhere and we talk about it. Jesus says to Peter at the end of John, you follow me. Peter's kind of going, well, what about him? What about John? He seems to be your favorite, you know. What about him? Jesus says, no, you follow me. It's going to look different for John. You, Peter, you follow me. We joined this church about 18 months ago during the time when we were distanced and we sat in like little islands, you know, with two meters in front of us. And I was just desperate to chat to people. And then whenever we got to sit closer, even with the one meter, one of my favorite things about coming to church on a Sunday was hearing your stories. Hearing your stories about your childhood. Hearing your stories about what that week had been like for you, about what work was like for you, about your family, about your neighbors, about what was going on, what COVID had been like for you. My work, I work a lot with church leaders and I just love being with their churches as well because it lets me see actually where God is working, not just through the leaders, but through the people. Paul says, you are the church. Every member, so different you are the church. You are the place where God is going to work in his world. But we've got to make it real. And so what is it? What is your story? Who are you? As he calls your name and he invites you to participate into what he's doing in the world. Who are you? What has made you you? It's been your life journey good or bad or hard or great, all those mixtures of things in your story. Where are you? I mean, literally, where are you going this week? Into an office, into families' homes, into your neighborhood, into Tesco. Where are you going? Where has God placed you, rooted you? It matters when he's asking you to join him with what he's doing in the world. The best place to work out how God is calling each of you to participate with him, I think, is a home group. (laughs) That's what we should be doing in home group, talking about our weeks, talking about our work, talking about our neighbors and our families. What's this saying to us? What's God saying here? And joining together as we follow after him together and make it real. Often, I think we think of participation with Christ as to what he's given us in our strengths and our capabilities and our capacities, our gifts. And we talked a wee bit about that, you know, in shape. When was that? Gosh, before Christmas. Um, you know, our skills, our gifts, our abilities, all those things that we've got packaged together to give who God's made us to be. (coughs) And as I was sitting reading this today again, it jumped out to me that actually the person writing this, Mark, and Peter, who was speaking the words that Mark wrote, because Peter was preaching to the early church in Rome And then Mark was writing them down for the early church, gathering all these stories together. Peter denied Jesus. Right at the crunch point, like the day after he said, I follow you anywhere, Jesus. To a servant girl, he said, no, I don't don't know him. Not me. 
change his accent a wee bit. But he was restored. He was picked up when he met Jesus, brought back into participating with him and what Jesus had for him to do. Feed my sheep. Mark, John Mark, he was the one who broke up the bromance between Barnabas and Paul because he deserted them. All went off on the second missionary journey. John Mark was like, here, this is no crack. I'm way back to mommy in Jerusalem because he grew up in this, one of the, the first Christian homes in, in Jerusalem, quite a wealthy family. And people don't really know why he turned back. Was it just too hard? I mean, only shipwrecks and all. Come on. Or did he not actually quite like what was happening with the Gentiles? Was he not quite ready for it, to be part of it? And he went back to that safe, full-on Jewish space. Paul wouldn't take him with him again. Barnabas wanted to. And the two of them had the biggest breakdown in relationship that we've seen in the early church. The most regrettable incident in the early church because of John Mark. And that's how he was known in the early church. This is a passage that talks about rejection and resistance to the way of the cross. And Peter and Mark, right in these pages, bring their whole life, their story, their failures, right into the story. In chapter 14 in Mark, there's this little picture of a guy who runs away in his underwear because he doesn't want to be part of what God is doing, where Jesus is going. And people think that's Mark putting himself into the gospel. And as I was preparing this, and again reading it today, I can't shake the sense that someone here has got a red F over their life and fail. Following Jesus is not for me. Cross that line, it's too late. That participation sounds good. Not for me. Not because you're rejecting it, but because you feel you're not invited into it anymore. Mark's life says no. Peter's life says no. It's not over for you. Jesus, the author the perfecter of your faith says no. And tonight issues you an invitation to join with him in the renewal of all things through your story, through your failure, through your weakness. Because that is where Jesus works. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Whatever your baggage Jesus does not work in apni parvana. There's a second transition that happens in chapter six. There's a transition where Jesus has worked within the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's rejected in that space. He doesn't go back to it. Instead, he mobilizes his people to go out into people's homes, into households, making it real. And he starts to speak against God's people and the systems of the, the synagogues and Judaism as it was in first century Palestine and Israel there. And there's a, there's a comparison in chapter six um, between power and periphery. There's this comparison, first of all, between Jesus and Herod. And Jesus, he takes them back to his hometown and they see him who he really is. Now, Galilee, often we don't think about this, but Mark's readers would know all about what Galilee meant. It was the back end of nowhere. Socially, it was that town. The failed revolutionaries who tried to rise up and failed. In John chapter one, Nathaniel, not my husband, the other Nathaniel in here says, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And when they go and they're like, how does he come off with all this great stuff? How does he do this great stuff? We know this wee guy. He was a wee spring chicken all running around us. We know him. We know his family. How can this be what it seems to be? And they've got questions about who Jesus is. Now notice they don't say the son of Joseph. That would have been the way people would describe the father's son. 
They say the son of Mary, and that's an insult. And they say he's a carpenter. That means he's no theological training. Jesus was an offense to people. He was a stumbling block. He didn't add up in their expectations. He was an uneducated, illegitimate person from a working class peasant family. A pilot at the end when he's on the cross, he says, here you're a king. Jesus says, you have no idea what my kingdom is like. And it was like a real joke. You know, the king of the Jews, and they dressed him up, put a sign up. This was hilarious. There's Herod, there's Jesus. And I think we have forgotten sometimes in the church that our king was Jesus of Nazareth from the back end of nowhere. The person, the frame, the human frame that Jesus, that God chose to enter into in all his fullness and be pleased to enter that not the kind of person we expect or that often we want. And then you've got Herod and you've got this guy over here. He was the son of the Herod from the nativity stories. And so he was given some of his dad's kingdom and he's just sought after more and more and more. He actually wasn't like the king. King Caesar Augustus refused to give him that title king. He was a tetrarch. And he kept pushing so strongly that actually Caesar called him a traitor. He was hungry for power and title. It's kind of like the, the Trump or the Boris, you know. It was that character of leadership that Mark's readers would know. And the leader of God's people, the one who was given a place, the king of the Jews, to spiritually and politically lead and shape God's people, who were supposed to be a light to the nations, to be different, to be beautiful, to be good, to be shalom and flourishing. Here's this king holding a VIP party, drunk with X-rated entertainment. Killed his brother's wife so that he could, kill his brother so he could marry his wife. Now being seduced by her daughter. And he's throwing around his wealth. I'll give you half my kingdom not his kingdom to give. He was a steward. God had given him that land. And you remember in 1 Samuel 8, when God's people wanted to be like the other nations and say, give us a king. We want a human king. We want someone we can see. We want someone strong. We want someone according to our values. And Samuel said, he is going to take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take your land and your animals. And that day you will cry out for relief from that kind of king. And they said, no, we want it. We want the king. And so they got it. They pandered after that kind of leader. An abusive shepherd fails to have that spiritual leadership, fails to demonstrate Yahweh's heart. He became a pharaoh, he just became another land of Egypt that they had escaped from. And so in this passage, we see Jesus and we see Herod and Jesus is the shepherd who has compassion on the sheep because they have no shepherd to protect and to give them goodness. A shepherd who yields and wields his power very differently. And there's a, there's a comparison of Herod and Jesus and in their feasts, in the shape of feasts they put on for people and who they invite in. And so the official king in the palace with the VIPs, the food, the wine, the entertainment, the abundance, the glitz. And then the periphery, the wilderness space, with only one packed lunch of a boy, but people hungry for Jesus, hungry for that shepherding. Wilderness, it's all throughout scripture. It's a weird place, isn't it? I really sense God asking me to take 40 days of wilderness just over Christmas after Christmas. And it's the place where God speaks clearly. There's no distractions. But it's dangerous. There's wild animals in the wilderness. There's no protection. There's nowhere to hide. No supports. In general, I don't know that the Western church has known this peripheral space in the way that the global church has, maybe. 
our experience of church, our reading of Jesus, is through generations of being in a culture of, of Christendom, of empire, of palace, not periphery. And when I read Mark's gospel in the slum, it struck me really strongly that actually people saw Jesus in a whole different way. They relate to the Jesus of Nazareth. They see the crown that's made of thorns, not of gold. The throne that was a cross. And the power that rises from broken spaces. Not by my choice, God has brought me to participate in the world of disability. My husband into the world of racial justice, asylum seekers and refugees, and loads of you are entering into that space, that peripheral space and the margins of global poverty. The video that we saw this morning, we're being invited into that space. The persecuted church. It has been my deepest pain, but my greatest privilege to partner with God in the peripheral spaces and to see the kingdom breaking out there and the brokenness. And as we join with him, the spirit of God pushes people away from the palace and towards the periphery. Not to create programs or projects because that's still like a palace to the periphery, but to feast with people from their packed lunches that they bring to us. And there is a power, there's a spiritual authority that I have seen in those places. I haven't created it. I have been in awe of it. The people who gather there, who go there, kingdom is more beautiful than Christendom. Jesus is more powerful than Herod. And there are people who are birthing the kingdom in peripheral places. They will never be on a stage in any Christian conference. They will not write books. You won't hear them on a podcast. They don't tweet a lot. They're unimportant in the Christian celebrity world. They will not be in the VIP lounge at the Gettys or Chris Tomlin or the Hillsong concert. <laughs> that VIP lounge is a real thing, by the way. What has become of us? Let's be careful when we read the Gospels and we read the prophets and Jeremiah that we don't take the message of Jesus and Jeremiah and put it out the stained glass window to society because their message was to God's people. It was to the values and the state of what had happened in the covenant people of God that they were seeking so strongly after palace and not being present in the periphery. It is so much easier to focus on what the wrong stuff out there is. It is not easy to lift this as a mirror to my life, to see what's wrong in here or in here. The spirit of empire always draws us in. Always, we are human beings palace, privilege, personal power, platform, domination, not dominion. And Jesus calls us back. The Spirit pushes us into different places and breaks us, breaks our heart. And we see him there and we find him there. The third transition that happens in chapter 6 is that we see Jesus moving in the first five chapters from just wowing people with brilliant parables and brilliant miracles to show the disciples that there will be a resistance. It's not all going to go swimmingly for you. There's going to be rejection. If they reject him, they reject you. And he tells the story of John the Baptist who paid the price, and he shows us his rejection from the spiritual leader of the time. And he warns the disciples that your message is going to be rejected too. But join me in the rejection. 
and the boat and the storm. Anytime you see a boat and a storm in the Gospels, it's really talking about the church and Satan's assault on the church. It's the little image that the Gospel writers use. Jesus is sowing seeds here and he ramps this up in chapter eight after Peter says, yeah, you are the king, you are the Messiah that was promised. And there's rejection. The message is that Jesus is king and that the kingdom has come. There's a whole new way to be in this world. Take your allegiance from here and put it over to Jesus. That will get resistance. It's not a popular way to be. That is a challenge when we call people to repent, to change their way of being, to change their allegiance, it's going to be resisted. There's also a cost when we pay the price of following Jesus. It's not his story that changes and comes into our story. Our story becomes part of his story. And when we participate with Jesus in what he's doing, he asks us to let go of things so that we can move and join where he is working. There is a prophetic possibility here in this chapter. And then we see the fourth transition. We move John the Baptist to the disciples. John the Baptist was the prophet. He was the one in the wilderness who was preparing the way for the Lord. And there's a space here where Jesus is showing us and Mark and Peter are showing us that season was over. John as the prophet was finished and it's over to you guys. <laughs> it is your job to prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness peripheral spaces. There's this ad that keeps popping up when we watch our smart TV, and it's Grand Designs. I've never watched Grand Designs, but the guy who hosts, I don't, I don't know his name, but he's sitting with a couple, and they had a windfall money, and they just want to design the craziest kind of house. It's in the most beautiful, beautiful place. Up on this hill, it's looking out over the... I mean, they showed, like, in this architectural image what it looked like to design it. Oh, my word. So he says to the wife, did you ever imagine you would live in a house like this? And she said, listen, I never imagined that it was a possible that a house like this could exist. <laughs> this house is beyond my wildest imagination. And then I never imagined that I could live in a house like this. There's something here about a prophetic imagination that the disciples are being called into because John's time is over. Now John, he proclaimed God's words after 400 years of silence, apart from Gabriel and the angels and the birth of Jesus. And he prepared God's way in the wilderness. He preached, be ready to commit to a change. Now, even prophets need their possibilities stretched because after that fantastic session out in the wilderness of baptizing people, people being ready for Jesus, pointing, he is coming. John was in prison. Before he was beheaded here by Herod, he was in prison. And he says to Jesus' disciples, ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one who was to come? Or did I get it wrong? Why am I in here? Why is it like this? This is not what I expected. Different kind of possibility. The prophetic is not really just talking about what, what you believe, not what your, Jesus is calling us to that we accept. Often, people quite like the prophetic. They like to hear it. Herod loved to hear it, didn't he? He loved listening to John. There was something that stirred him because he knew that something more was possible, was brewing, that there was something. But he didn't buy in. He didn't go with it. And the crowds, when they saw John the Baptist, Luke 7, Jesus says, what did you go out to see when you went to see John? A reed swaying in the wind, entertainment. What did you do with it? My friend's mom says, we love a good challenge, don't we? But we don't like to change. The real lack of prophetic imagination in this chapter where there was no healing, there was unbelief, there was a blockage in the, the people who he went to heal in the villages, his hometown, in Herod, in the disciples where their hearts were so hard. 
That word astonished, it just means they couldn't even imagine who Jesus was. They'd seen so much of him. They'd done so much through his authority and they still just couldn't imagine that this was Jesus and what was possible. I love this conversation in the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, I, I talk to God like this all the time. And so they're in this situation and they're like, right, Jesus, you know, it's dangerous. We're in the wilderness. This isn't good. Send the people away. You know, it's time to go. You know that retreat you promised us? Come on, let's go. Now, that wasn't odd. That was kind of wise and safe and proper, sensible. That was what was done. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. Now, there is no Tesco Express. There is no Deliveroo. There's no pizza delivery. There's nothing. They're in the wilderness. Jesus says, you feed them. I love this. The disciples go, yeah, Jesus. We've got a sarcasm here. So like, just give us that non-existent 40 grand and we'll empty all the Tesco's and Chinese restaurants and we'll feed these 5,000 people. These guys are done. <laughs> They're tired. How many loaves do you have? Says Jesus. Go and see. Check out what you've got. And this little boy's got fish and bread. Bring it to me and I'll do something bigger with it than you expected, than you ever thought was possible, that you ever imagined. And he relives that Moses and manna in the wilderness, the bread from heaven. I am who I am, says Jesus. Don't limit me. And even after this in the storm, their hearts are hardened. They just think there's a blockage here. The boundaries of what was possible for them, and we all have boundaries of what is possible in our lives, curtailed who Jesus was to be to them. Jesus calling them to follow him, participate with him in the bringing of heaven to earth, the loosening of Satan's grip on the world. As he calls us this evening, it needs a prophetic imagination. When I say prophetic, it goes beyond human wisdom and intelligence. It is a spirit-filled, authoritative voice and a way of being in the world. It stirs and it challenges the status quo. It speaks truth to power. It prods apathy. It challenges pride. It shakes discontent into complacency. It stretches into other possibilities. It has a vision and a passion and a drive for what could be, what should be. A prophetic imagination looks at the world, it looks at your neighborhoods, it looks at the education system and the economic situation. And it says, there must be more than this. What are you doing, Jesus? I want to be part of it. And as you, as we sit here this evening on a cusp of another week with your busy week that I've asked you to put your hand on, are you open to imagining new possibilities for this week, for your work, for your family, for your relationships? For you? Are you hungry for new possibilities? Or are you just tired? Do you feel a need? Do you see the need for new possibilities? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God and they will see what He is up to in the world. And perhaps this evening, you and I and we as a church need to cry, Spirit, would you breathe on us and stretch out our imagination. Give us faith for what we don't see. And give us a passion for a pure heart to be able to see it. There was an unexpected possibility here because they got into the fishing boat and they were sent off towards Bethsaida. That was a fishing village, a hometown. Maybe that was the retreat that never was, you know, your COVID holiday that you booked for March 2020. <laughs> Cancelled, rescheduled so many times. Bethsaida was also known for unbelief. Woe to you, Cherazin and Bethsaida, said Jesus. 
And I wonder why these disciples were going back there. Did they think maybe they could get a second chance? They've done it in different towns and villages. They can go and cast out demons and preach there. Was it their retreats? Did they need a time out? There's always people around Jesus. At least we can go into our homes and shut the door. There's a threat in the air with John the Baptist. What's happened? I just need something safe and familiar. I want to see those people again. See our families that we've left. Jesus has just shown him them, his experience, and his hometown. You're going to be without honor there, guys. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be recognized. There is no fruit in that place of unbelief. And so remember, Mark is writing, and Peter is preaching, and Peter went back to fishing. Mark went back to Jerusalem. Their imagination didn't stretch as far as where Jesus was leading and pushing them into those peripheral spaces. And so they don't land in Bethsaida. They land in Gennesaret. And Gennesaret was known to be really, really fertile. Brilliant soil, loads of figs, and all the crops grew really, really well there. And as Jesus watches over them, that struggle in the storm in the, in the lake they end up not going where they thought they were going, but going somewhere else. That happens in Acts as well. They're not allowed to go to preach in Asia. They're sent to Macedonia. And they land, and there's this whole crowd of people just waiting. This is a field ripe to harvest that Jesus has sent them to. People are lining up to be healed. People are saying, Jesus, can we just touch your cloak? That's what God does. He redirects our lives into new possibilities. And even as I'm just speaking tonight, I wonder, is there, is there people and there's a storm? You don't know what's happening. You are rowing and rowing and rowing, but you're not getting anywhere. Jesus is watching and he is coming and he wants to go ahead of you to bring you into a place of fruitfulness but it might look different. What does it look like to follow Jesus with all these Ps? Right here, right now, keep your hand on what your week is gonna be this week. What does it look like to participate through your personal story and a different kind of power and prayer and the gift of Pentecost for you in peripheral spaces what is the price that you might have to pay? Are you open to those prophetic possibilities? What does it look like? Well, some examples of how I'm seeing Christians participate with God here, 2022 in Northern Ireland. I have a friend, mentored her for years, and she's got two little kids. For the last six months, she's had a post-viral thing She's been lying on her bed. She can't even read my WhatsApp messages. I have to send little voicemails and she can listen to them. For Ruth, trusting God, following Jesus, it's just knowing that he sees and that he's there. And in the middle of her chaos, just holding on, just staying in the boat. Betty, when we went to Bangladesh, she was in her 90s. She had come back from Ethiopia years ago. We visited her. She wanted to give us her suitcase. We, we spent our time in Bangladesh with this 1960s suitcase. It was fantastic, um, given by her. And she prayed for us when we went to her, her little um, fireplace covered in SIM prayer letters. And she sat with her four daily carers who came in to give her a piece of toast and a cup of tea. And she said, read that one out for me. Let's pray. She participated with what Christ was doing through the world. Another woman I know, for her, following Jesus meant obeying him and his direct request to her to forgive the person who betrayed her the most and to keep living a family life. My father-in-law, for him to follow Jesus, he left full-time Christian ministry as a missionary in Bangladesh and he went into international development work and education so often we think of it as the other way around, don't we? And he left that place. He chose to live not in the diplomatic enclave in Dhaka, but to live with the people as the people. 
It was not an uncommon sight for me to see my father-in-law disappear up to his office and come down with a brown envelope and disappear for an hour because he sensed God asking him to give a certain amount of money to a certain person. And he was sensitive to that. He was listening and ready. My friend's dad has been in hospital for six weeks with cancer. It is not the prognosis they wanted. He is the most infectiously joyous person. And he is participating with Christ on his ward in the city hospital because medics are coming in and they're flocking to his bed to get a little injection of joy at the start and at the end of their shift. And he's praying for them. I know a businessman who's got a chain of businesses across the UK, and he, he had a life where he just was collecting sports cars and holiday homes across Europe. And he said, what am I doing? Jesus, what do you want me to do with what I've got? And he gave a percentage of his employment to homeless, to people who've been in prison, to learning disability. I know a medic who prays for each patient on their caseload. I know a teacher who goes home and prays for each student in their class. We have friends in York, they couldn't have children, broke their hearts. They worked for Food for the Hungry and they have adopted children from, from the seven nations that they were in. Those kids are all up and out and they fostered teenage mums with, with babies and lived with them in their home. Now they're fostering unaccompanied refugees living here. When we came back from Bangladesh, we were broken. We needed a touch from God. We were John the Baptist going, did we hear you right, God? A woman went into an estate agent and said, listen, God's told me that I have to give this house that I've inherited from my aunt to people who need it. And the estate agent phoned us and he said, um, you're religious, aren't you? And he said, yeah, yeah. Well, go and see this house. And this lady had inherited her house from her aunt and she just sensed God saying, give this to someone. Someone needs this. We could not afford a house. She dropped the price of that house like, and we got this little house. And God said, I've got this. When Micah had his diagnosis and we came back from Bangladesh, we fell apart. Often I use this metaphor. It felt like someone had lifted a trap door and shoved us into this whole underworld of challenging behaviors and autism. And until you're in it, you don't know it exists. It is not a good place to be. And I said to God, please lift us out of this. I don't want to be here anymore. And Jesus said, I have work for you to do here. If I lift you out, you can't do that work. Following Jesus right here, right now. This week, there's an invitation for us to join him in bringing heaven to earth through your stories, right where you are. I wonder, does the Spirit say, we say, yeah, your kingdom come, just as it is in heaven, Jesus. And the Spirit says, well, I am ready when you are. Come and join me. Come and stand with me and be with me, the one who is able to do far, far more, infinitely, abundantly more than anything you could ask or imagine. And I will give you that power to work among you, within you, through you. To him be glory in the church and in King Jesus, to all generations through the ages, but also for this week in Belfast.